Colossians chapter 4 this evening as we continue in our kind of really conclusion of the book of Colossians. If you remember, last Wednesday we started in this section as Paul begins to wrap up the, the book in chapter 4, uh, kind of giving, exchanging some pleasantries between uh, him and his team and the church at Colossae and others in the region. And he gives kind of some basic information about some of these individuals that are listed here. Last week we talked just about the fact that, that Paul, uh, as his ministry went on and, and, and later on in his life and ministry, his team grew and expanded and there were, he was kind of surrounded by more people. And, and this particular uh, book really gives us kind of a glimpse into uh, what exactly was going on here? What I really like about this, and I've just been encouraged as I've studied this, uh, it just brings this sense of reality and humanity to to the Word of God, where you actually, you know, we, we read often the epistles, and and they're instructional, and, and uh, they're applicable in the sense that, you know, we're Christians and we need these truths, but sometimes it can seem like they're so distant, and and, and it's hard to really put them into a context. But, but the reality is that here we're able, we're kind of introduced to some of these individuals and, and we're given a little bit of information. And by doing a little bit of searching of the scriptures, you're, you're able to kind of see just the reality of this situation. Paul is in Rome and he's writing uh, to this church at Colossae, but he's got these men around him, those who have served with him and are laboring with him, and, and some of them are known by the church in Colossae, and, and I mean, these, these events, it just kind of brings everything, it almost tethers everything uh, to a particular time frame and timeline, and, and it's just a fascinating study as far as I'm concerned. And then obviously the fact that we start to uh, get just a little bit of information about some of these individuals. One of the things that I mentioned about, uh, about this also last week is the fact that uh, I think it's, it's interesting, so many of these people, uh, we don't know, mu- know much of anything about them outside of what's written here or maybe in one other place in the New Testament. You see their name mentioned and really not much else about them. And we might think that they're kind of insignificant individuals because of that, but apparently they were significant enough for the Lord to include them in the Word of God. And so there is there was something significant about them uh, in that way, and I think it, it, we would just do well to know a little bit about these these people. And so last week we kind of uh, went through, I believe, verse number ten, where we uh, finished up looking at Marcus or Mark, John Mark, uh, who was Barnabas's nephew, and considered some things about him. Uh, but tonight we're going to pick it up in verse number eleven. Although we'll uh, we'll back up to verse number. 9 and read down through just uh, for the sake of context. But if you're in Colossians 4, would you stand with me uh, as we read the scripture together tonight? We'll begin in verse number 9. It says, With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you received commandments, If he come unto you, receive him. 
And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers in the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and for them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. We'll stop there for tonight. You can be seated. So as we continue in this list of individuals that Paul is giving here, and where we left off last week, the very first one that's mentioned tonight in verse 11 is this individual who is named Jesus, also known as Justice. Now we know that this is obviously not Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. This isn't the same Jesus, but actually Jesus was a pretty common name uh, in that time. It was a common Jewish name. And justice would have been a Roman name. So remember that the Roman Empire at this time in history had dominated much of the world. And so when you had Jews living in this culture, they were really kind of uh, they, they were kind of, of a, a dual culture uh, type of nature. They had their their Jewish life and name, but they were also influenced by uh, by the Roman culture. And so here you have a man whose name is Jesus, a common Jewish name but also is known as Justice. Now, very, very little is known about this man other than the fact that he was one of Paul's team. He was a Jew. Notice it says that he's included with Aristarchus and Marcus as being of the circumcision. And when we read in the scriptures of being of the circumcision, that's an indication this was a Jew not only, uh, uh, not only by birth, but also probably prior to salvation, uh, by his religion, he was of the circumcision, and this is what we know of him. Now you might think, okay, let's move on to the next one, but I want you to just notice some words that he has here. So he's, he's talked about Aristarchus and Marcus, or John Mark, and he says, and Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, then notice what he says, these only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. So here's a man, we know very little about him, other than he was a Jew that worked with Paul. He is a fellow laborer or fellow worker with Paul. And all that we know of him is that he was in the business of comforting Paul. He says, which have been a comfort unto me. You know, sometimes I think there's a great blessing uh, associated with just being an encourager and a helper to God's man. And, I, and that's what, what really what I see in this man, Jesus, or Justice. We don't know much about him. Uh, he wasn't, from what we can tell, a man who went out and set the world on fire or turned the world upside down like the apostles did. Uh, I don't know whether he was a, a, a preacher or whether he was a, a faithful church member. I don't know uh, what his occupation was. I don't know what his socioeconomic status was. I don't know what his education level was, but here's what I know about him. Paul says he was a fellow worker of mine, and he's been a comfort to me. You know, there really is a ministry of assistance, a ministry of help, a ministry of encouraging, that, that, that if, it may, you know, sometimes 
I think we get this perspective, this idea that unless, you know, there's like, there, there's the clergy, you know, the ones who've been uh, called of God to give their life and in full-time ministry, they leave the, the occupational uh, uh, secular world and they, they, they dedicate their life and even their career becomes a, 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 a dedication to ministry. You've got pastors and missionaries and people who go out and travel and preach. And then you've just got church members. And church members can serve God and they can be used of God, but, you know, they're, they're not really on the same level uh, as a, a, a preacher or a pastor or something of that nature. But here's what we know. Paul, who was, he said he was less than the least of the, the apostle, or less than the least of all saints and the least of the apostles, but he calls this man a fellow worker. We look at a man like Epaphroditus over in the book of Philippians, who, again, was just a man who came and was a blessing to Paul, just an encouragement to him, someone who was a comforter, uh, someone who was just there, a companion, and, and he called him his fellow laborer, his co-laborer in ministry. You see, in God's eyes, we are all in this thing together. And our reward is equal in regard to our, our commitment and our service. And here's a man that though there's little known about him, we know that he was a man who was busy about helping God's man and he was a fellow worker. I think of, you know, just the example that was set back in the Old Testament. If you remember uh, when, when uh, Israel went out to battle against the Amalekites and, and when Moses would hold up his, his hands with the rod of God in his hand and, and, and how, how Israel would prevail. But when he'd put his hands down, the Amalekites would prevail. And, and so he held up that rod as long as he could. But his hands became weary, his arms became tired, and so God used Aaron and her to come and just stay up his hands. And there's a great lesson in that. There's a, there, there, there's a great illustration in that. that It's not just the man that God is using to lead the charge, but those who come around him and support him and help him are all equally responsible for carrying out the work that God has given and so here's justice, a man who was faithful in that. I want to show you one other place in Scripture before we move on from here. And this is 2 Timothy chapter number 1, just a few pages ahead. I want to show you another man who was used of the Lord in this way, a man that we don't know much about. But notice it says in verse number 16 of 2 Timothy 1, Paul says, The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. In other words, Onesiphorus, that was a guy that the Lord used to keep me going. He refreshed me. He help me. Jesus, or justice, was a Jewish believer who was an assistant to Paul. And he helped him. He encouraged him. He was a fellow worker and a comfort. Now you have these three men that are just listed here, Aristarchus, Marcus, and Jesus, who is called justice. These are Jews who are working with Paul. But then we come to verse 12, and it says, Epaphras, who is one of you. 
a servant of Christ. Now, why is that significant? Well, because Epaphras was apparently a man from the church at Colossae. He was a Colossian. This would mean he was a Gentile. Why is that significant? Well, because remember that in these days, there was great division, really, between Jews and Gentiles. And, and it's just a reminder that in Christ, there is no class distinction. There is no difference. There is no such thing anymore as Jew or Gentile in Jesus uh, we are just simply in Christ. And here we have Epaphras, who's one of you. He's a man from the church at Colossae. He has now come, uh, apparently, to be with Paul in Rome as, as Paul is in prison. I told you last week that this letter would have been written about the same time as the, the, the letter uh, to Philemon and would have been carried with it. And in Philemon, it identifies Epaphras as a fellow prisoner. <laughs> and so apparently, I get the idea that Epaphras had gone, maybe following the example of Jesus or justice, gone to be an encouragement to Paul, and somewhere along the line, uh, he got arrested too and ended up getting put in, uh, put in prison. And now his ministry has changed. Instead of now going and just being an assistant and a helper and an encourager to Paul... He is now also a prisoner, and notice what he says. He sends greeting to the church at Colossae. It says, he saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. He says, basically, Epaphras' ministry has changed. Now what he is doing is he is laboring fervently in prayer. By the way, can I just say that prayer in itself is a ministry and prayer is a labor. It's a work. One of the things that we, we often talk about is that most, most Christians would have to be honest and admit that our prayer lives could use some work. They could use some, uh, you know, we really could, could grow in that area. And I think one reason that it tends to be an area that is lacking in our lives is because it is an area that requires work. You don't pray and, and, and really get a hold of God flippantly or easily, if I can put it that way. It's a labor. It's a work. He says he's laboring fervently for you in prayers. And, and this is a reason that, honestly, you know, sometimes we talk about Prayer as though it's like the least thing that we could do. You know, is it, other than praying for you, is there anything I can do? Well, honestly, praying is the greatest thing you could do. To, to labor on behalf of someone else or for someone else in prayer, interceding for them, that is a ministry all in itself. And sometimes I, I see uh, uh, God's people and, and sometimes senior saints, you know, who who maybe physically they're not able to, to do all of the things that they used to do, and they feel like, well, all I can do is pray, and, and I'm just kind of worthless because all I can do is pray. Listen, God put Epaphras in chains, in bonds, in prison, so that all he could do was pray, and his ministry became a ministry of prayer. And as he prayed for his church family, look what it says he prayed. He he always labors, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. 
Epaphras wants nothing more for you than that you would know the will of God and that you would do the will of God. By the way, I, I believe that that is, that is a heart that is given by God. A desire to see others find and do the will of God is something that only God can put within you. We sometimes will talk about the heart of a pastor, a pastor's heart. And you know what a pastor's heart really is? You know, what the heart of a, you know what the heart of this pastor is? I want you to find God's will for your life and do it. And whatever that is, I want you to stand perfect and complete in the will of God. But that's a desire that I have for you that I believe comes from God. And as you mature in Christ, that ought to be your desire for others uh, of your brethren. I just want, you know, even for our children. What do you want for your kids? I mean, some people want their kids to grow up and be successful and to, uh, you know, do very well for themselves uh, financially or to make a name for themselves or, uh, or, or I just want my kids to grow up and be happy. Listen, I want nothing else for my kids than to know God's will and do it. And if they will be found in the will of God and doing the will of God, I'll be happy no matter where they are. If they're a, a missionary somewhere on the other side of the world that's just making a, a, a huge impact for the kingdom of God, or if they're faithfully serving in their church, working a, a, a job somewhere in the world that God's called them to do, I don't care what they do. I just want them to do what God wants them to do. I want him to be what God wants him to be. And that's what, what he's saying about Epaphras. He, he's praying for you that you would know the will of God and that you would stand perfect and complete in his will. Imagine what it may have been like for Epaphras to be sitting there in prison feeling hopeless, helpless, and useless but now these words are ringing in the ears of the, the, your church family. He's praying always for you. He's laboring for you in prayer. Notice verse 13. He says, For I bear him record that he hath great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Now if you, look, if you were to look at a map, these three cities, Colossae and Laodicea, and Hierapolis are all kind of right there in the same region, the same area. And, and it seems that these churches were in fellowship with one another. These, these, these believers knew each other. And this man, Epaphras, had a testimony of being zealous for God's people. Being zealous for the people of the church at Colossae, his church family for being zealous for the church at Laodicea and the church at Hierapolis. Do you know, I, I really believe that this is a mark of someone who is walking in the Spirit and has, has the Holy Spirit working within them. There's going to be a love for God's people and a desire for them. There's going to be an interest in them. He says, he says that, that, that Epaphras had a great zeal for these churches. Can I just ask you, how is your zeal in regard to the brethren? Do you love your church family? 
I mean, seriously, do you love your church family? I don't just mean, yeah, we, you know, we've, we've got a lot of things in common, and, and I love to go and hang out. This isn't a social club. This is more than a social club. This is God's church. This is a, this is a representation of the family of God, but we're more than just the family of God. We've been joined together as a body in Christ. When you are not with your church family, do you pray for your church family? Do you pray for one another? Do you desire good things, God's will, in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Could it be said of you that you are zealous for God's people? Epaphras was a Colossian who really his testimony was he loved his church family and he prayed for them. He was zealous for them. And then we come to verse number 14 and we find this man named Luke. Luke, the beloved physician. Now Luke is a very interesting character in the Bible. There's not a whole lot said about him. He's just kind of a man that is always there. <laughs> He's just present. He is about the work of the Lord. Uh, again, this is a man that, that wasn't exactly known for uh, being real flashy or outspoken, but he was a man that was faithful. He was a man that was present. This is the other. We, we, we mentioned John Mark, the non-apostle, uh, who wrote a, one of the Gospels, this is the other one. Did you know two of the four Gospels were not written by the twelve apostles? Mark and Luke were not apostles. Not, not of the twelve, anyway. And so here you have Luke, who was a physician. He wasn't a, a preacher. He was a doctor. That's what he was. But God used him to write the, the Gospel according to Luke. And he used him also to write the book of Acts. And so when, when you look at those two books of the Bible, you know, Luke is 21 chapters and Acts is, what, 28 chapters? You've got a pretty large section of the New Testament that was written and penned down by the hand of Luke, the beloved physician. And here he is again with Paul as Paul is in Rome. And he's now sending greeting to the church at Colossae. Now, if you were to read through the book of Acts carefully, and I'd encourage you to do this, you might notice Luke as the writer, he's narrating the book of Acts, but you'll see him change pronouns as he's talking through the narrative. He'll talk about how, uh, how uh, speaking of Paul and his team, that they, you know, they went this way or they sailed that way, and then sometimes he'll say, we arrived at this place or we were here, and he includes himself because on and off throughout Paul's missionary journeys, Luke was there with him. He was just there. He was present. A man who was talented in, he was skilled, maybe we could say, in, uh, in a secular profession. He was a physician, he was a doctor. And he was a man greatly used of the Lord. Just a side note there, I believe whether you are a preacher or a doctor 
or a lawyer or a welder or a sanitation worker or whatever it is, God can use you if you'll be surrendered to him. And that was what Luke was. He was, he was a doctor, not so much a preacher, but just a, a man who was used by the Lord because he was faithful. And when I look at the name Luke and I look at the testimony of Luke, I see a man who had a testimony of faithfulness. I want you to go with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We looked at 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 4. And I want you to notice verse number 10. Paul says... For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Then he makes this statement in verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. I, I think that's such a... I mean, it's just one of those... One of those statements, you could just breeze right past that and not even notice it. But if you stop and think about that, it's profound and impactful. When everyone else was gone, Luke was there. Because he was a faithful man. Now these other people, Demas has a tainted testimony. I don't know much about Crescens, who went to Galatia. Titus went to Dalmatia. I'm, I'm assuming he did that for ministry because of God's leadership and God's calling. I'm not belittling these other guys who left Paul. But in Paul's greatest hour, in Paul's darkest hour, there was a man who was there with him, Luke. The only one. There are times in life when you have a lot of friends. Maybe, maybe in high school you had a lot of friends, a lot of people that you would consider your friends, people you spent a lot of time with, acquaintances and companions and whatever else. But have you ever been through a season in life where you just don't have many friends? And maybe through some of the dark days of life, it seems like no one's really there for you, except maybe one or two. Let me tell you something. In those moments, when you just really need a friend, and you don't have many, but there's one or two who've just stuck with you, those people become very precious to you. I believe that Luke was precious to Paul. Because there were times that Paul could say, only Luke is with me. I want to say to you, we ought to strive to be that kind of a friend. That kind of a supporter. I don't want to sound overly dramatic, but there are times in ministry 
when you go through these seasons or maybe you have to make some difficult decisions and you just don't really know who all is there with you. But sometimes God will bring along an individual or two that you just know they're with me. That's, a, that's a, such an encouraging reality. Just to know I'm not all alone. Uh, I want to show you an example of, um, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel 10. And this isn't in relation to, you know, a pastor necessarily or, or, or a spiritual leader. But in 1 Samuel 10, we see Saul has just been anointed to be king over Israel. And, uh, you know, not everyone in Israel supported him. Not everyone really thought that he was the right man for the job. But in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 10, in verse number 26, I want you to notice these words. It says, And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. We don't know how many there were. We don't know who they were. We don't have a list of their names. But there were several men that God had just appointed. He, he touched their heart. He put something within these men that said, that's God's man and we're with him. God had touched their hearts and they went with Saul. Now, I'm not saying this in any way to say to you, you know, you need to be loyal to me. That's not, that's not my intention in any of this. But, but as we look at a man like Luke, I, I think there ought to be something in us that says, I want to be that guy. I want to be the one who is there, who is with God's man through thick and thin, and if everyone else is gone, I'm there until God says otherwise. Only Luke is with me. So whether it be when Paul is writing in 2 Timothy and he says all these people have left and I'm alone but only Luke is with me. Or whether it be when he's writing to the Colossians with a, with a pretty good group of people around him. Luke is there. A faithful man who just stuck it out through the end. And then, just very briefly, I want to show you the end of that verse. Luke, the, uh, verse 14, Colossians 4. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Isn't it interesting that Demas was included in this list? But you see really a contrast, don't you, between Luke, who was always there, and Demas. I've never known a Christian family that named their child Demas. Now, Demas wasn't, I mean, from, from all accounts, it seems that Demas was a man of God who served the Lord. But his legacy was, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. What exactly does that mean? I don't know. There's some debate. There's some, some people think that, that that means that Demas was just, you know, carnally focused and, and all about the things of the world. And, you know, he just kind of went back. 
he decided he wasn't, wasn't for serving the Lord anymore, so he went back to the world. Others seem to think it had more to do with the fact that he realized you spend much time with the Apostle Paul, and pretty soon your head's going to be on the chopping block like his. And he wasn't ready to die yet, so he kind of put some distance between them. But whatever the reason, Demas's legacy is he started off well, but in the end, he forsook God's man, having loved the present world. And so really, in this verse, verse 14, you've got a contrast. You've got two individuals who at this time are both serving God. And by 2 Timothy chapter 4, Demas is gone. Luke is still there. And so here we, we're going to wrap it up with those two tonight, Luke and Demas. But I want to just, say, again, encourage you, remember, these were real individuals. These were real people, just like you and me. They lived in a different time. These were people that God used in various ways to serve Him. And I think we can learn from them and also, uh, Lord willing, be used of Him in a similar way.